Welcome to episode 47 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Hladke, and my co-host, Steve Saidman, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the House Committee hearings on sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces, Russia's military buildup on its border with Ukraine, and President Biden's decision to withdraw the remaining U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Our feature interview is with Professor Kash Khorasani from Concordia University, the director of SPNet, a Minds Collaborative Network. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So Steph, how are you doing? I'm doing well. And I saw that you got the vaccine, Steve. You must be celebrating. Tell me about how it went. It went really well. Uh, it was actually surprisingly easy. I've been trying a bunch of different places to get my wife signed up because she's a smidge older than I am. But it turns out you just have to turn 55 this year. You don't have to be 55 yet. So I will actually be vaccinated fully by the time I turn 55, which means I can then celebrate uh, at restaurants and movie theaters, I suppose, once the vaccine fully kicks in. I did it at Walmart. Very quick. It was very efficient. Had an appointment set up. They had everything spaced out, so it wasn't a problem. Uh, they let me take a picture of me and myself while, while I was to get the shot taken. I did have side effects. About 50% of people get a shot, get a little bit of a fever, and I got that. And about 30% of people get chills, and I absolutely got chills. It's the most chills I've had in a long, long time. I, I kept on then singing the song from uh, Greece. The one you want, you're the one I want, which starts off, I got chills. Mm -hmm. You want to give it a go right now? No, (laughs) nobody wants to hear me sing. Nobody wants to hear me sing. Uh, But I did feel like singing when I got the vaccine because it was a huge relief. I know it doesn't kick in for, uh, you know, a couple of weeks, but to know that the process has been started, that my body is revving up his engines to deal with this nasty disease. I'm plenty happy to get AstraZeneca. Yes, Moderna and and Pfizer sound better, but AstraZeneca is also 100% at preventing death. And that's really uh, what I want to do is prevent my death and my Mm -hmm. wife's death. And then just after we got the shots, they've changed the age of the 40s. So we got in before the crowds of all those uh, younger Gen X folks start crowding the Walmarts and the Costcos and the pharmacies. So it was pretty good timing for us. And I had the weekend to recover from the chills. I'm, I'm fine now. So a good Good vaccine experience. I recommend everybody who's eligible to get it and those who are not eligible to to get fake IDs and get it because I think it's worth it. Well, I'm very happy for you, Steve. And I'm in the strange situation where my husband can get it, but I can't. So we're on two sides of the age divide. But speaking of COVID, the CDSN organized a COVID-19 workshop based on questions it received from government. And I'm sure you crafted some of your own questions. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because it was spring break here, so I missed it. (laughs) So sure. Last year at this time, I asked D&D to give us some questions because I figured it's all hands on deck. Let's see if we can help out. And so they gave us a a bunch of questions they were trying to think about. And so we brought together the CDSN community and we also leaned on some of our other networks. And we had about 50 scholars last year. We had about 20 this year. And just think about 
these things given our expertise. And so we tried to do it again and we reached out a little wider. So we had question, a, a few questions from Global Affairs and we had a, a question from CSIS and we ultimately addressed four of them. Uh, and each one was fairly broad. So we had a fair amount of leeway to address them. So we'll be posting the memo later this week or early next week. And we'll be sharing that with the government the folks who gave us the questions will be sharing them with the public. So the questions ranged. I, I think one of the interesting conversations we had was about disinformation. J.C. Boucher has been doing a lot of research on disinformation. So he, he actually presented some research and we reacted to it about where the disinformation of a pandemic is coming from and a vaccine hesitancy is coming from. It turns out we can't blame the Chinese and the Russians. We have to blame the Americans. We have to blame Naomi Wolf and Rand Paul and others in the United States and how it's gravitated into Canada through those social media networks that are tied to those influencers. And it's really, you know, two things are going on here. Part of it is, is just far right extremism and part of it is distrust of government. The distrust of government piece of it is something that is more widespread. And so that's the thing that is really hard to deal with. You know, the far right people, you're just never going to persuade. But how do you get people who are distrustful of government to be a little more trusting of the vaccines? Maybe by having it be delivered through places like Costco and, and local pharmacies and Walmart, that may be less distrustful. You know, people may distrust those sources less than if you have to go to a government clinic. So maybe that's a way around it. But that that presentation was really interesting. We had good conversations about, you know, how is this shaping international relations? We had a conversation about the lasting impact. And there was also a question about how is this going to affect the CAF within Canada in terms of the, you know, funding and national unity and things like that. And so I think we're going to provide answers. I'm not sure that all the answers we're going to provide are going to be ones that the government wants to hear. To be frank, the military keeps on wanting to be an important part of an economic stimulus. And we came on saying, hmm. No, I don't think so. But that gets us to the budget, which came out yesterday and had a few items on it. There was money for a Northwood warning system, which I guess I was a little surprised by. I knew that there had been a lot of effort in town to try to promote that, but I wasn't sure I was going to have to see it, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into it. But for the stuff that we've been talking about lately, what was really striking and got a lot of news is that there were specific budget items for dealing with sexual misconduct in the armed forces. So I was curious as to what you made of those particular budget items. Yeah, so they're clear priorities, right? Eradicating sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces, NATO, and NORAD modernization. But I think everyone is, is sort of relieved that uh, sexual misconduct was a big area of focus for the budget because in the past, there are a slew of initiatives that have been proposed to tackle the problem of sexual misconduct in the Armed Forces, but there hadn't necessarily been a lot of new money dedicated to those efforts or mm -hmm you know, an, a boost in terms of uh, personnel power to sustain those efforts over the long term. So I think with this announcement, there is cause for optimism. So the budget has proposes to provide $236.2 million over five years. That's basically a quarter of a billion dollars over five years starting this year, which is a significant chunk of change. And it's going to both D&D and Veteran Affairs Canada to supplement uh, ongoing work. So it's been uh, it's been an interesting sort of week when it comes to that topic, because you had on the one hand, like additional witnesses that were waiting to testify. And then on the other hand, you had survivor advocacy groups, like it's just 700 saying that they were tired of the issue being politicized and they wanted to see action, not politics. So this is action, definitely putting some money into the budget for this. And uh, according to them, you know, survivors just want the report tabled ASAP and they want a survivor's needs to be looked after and resources committed. Uh, and of course, 
it's not the end of studying this, this issue because there is still the Common Status of Women Committee, which is committed to continue its own hearings on how to respond to sexual misconduct in the military. So we can keep the focus there on how the military should best respond to improving existing procedures or creating new entities to ensure the integrity of the reporting and investigation process. But I couldn't help but to think of your op-ed, uh, Steve, uh, when I read about the decision to stop the Defense Committee hearings, you've taken a public stands in your op-ed calling for the defense minister's firing. So what was your initial reaction to this decision? I was frustrated. I didn't think it was going to happen because I didn't think the liberals had the votes, but they got a vote from the Quebecois to, to close the meeting down. And then I think the conservatives were able to get a different block member to be on the committee and, and reverse that decision. There was a big discussion of that last Friday. And I'm of two minds of this. I see what the survivors want to do, and I see what their point is. And it makes sense if all the committee wants to do is go after Saijan's uh, staffers, because we have this debate about whether that's appropriate in Canada to, to go after the staffers, the minister, shouldn't they just be asking the minister? And I, I, I think that if that's all the opposition wants to do, then yeah, close the meetings down because you're not going to get anywhere. I think that if there's more people to hear from, I think if there's more people to, you know, bring forth the generals and have them and admirals and ask them questions, you know, find out why we're getting people with checkered records becoming three-star officers in charge of personnel. I think that there, there's more that the committee could have done. There, there could have been more questions being asked of different people rather than just trying to get the two or three staffers from the minister's office. And I think that would have been productive use. But if that wasn't going to happen, then you might as well close it down and see what kind of report can be produced. Again, given that it's a minority government, the report is going to be written in a way that the liberals aren't going to like. So they don't have control over the pen at this point in time. So I think that the report can be important. I just don't know if they had enough time to really seriously investigate the issues. People are talking about having an independent way to hold people accountable for accusations of sexual misconduct. So it's not, you know, people who are reporting to the Ministry of Defense or reporting to the CDS, the Chief of Defense Staff. But how you do that varies. Uh, there's all different kinds of models to borrow from other countries. I was in Germany where they have an ombudsman who is, has a civic budget and basically any soldier, sailor, aviator in the German armed forces has an app on their phone where they can immediately send a complaint to the ombudsman. And that, that ombudsman then reports directly to the German parliament, the Bundestag. And that's one way to do it. But then you get complaints about you know, aircraft are being, are too late. So, you know, there are other ways to deal with it. And I don't know if they really had enough time to explore the options. And so what kind of recommendations can they make? The good news is there are people out there who have done this kind of work. I was talking to somebody uh, this past week who's doing a lot of this work. And it does seem to be the case that the folks in government are looking for models and trying to figure this out, but they're not going to get a whole lot of good advice from parliament if parliament hasn't really done the work to figure out what can be done, what will reporting to parliament look like? And I do worry at the end of the day that reporting to parliament is is, is going to be an unsatisfying solution because once a government gets a majority again, parliament really doesn't have much power to, to push things around. But I guess if we have somebody reporting to parliament, then at least they'll give the opposition more fuel to put the government in difficult positions when, when the government isn't handling the stuff well. So I guess that's my long-winded answer. How do you feel about all this? I guess I'm more optimistic in terms of the uh, hearings continuing in this other committee. So a lot of the questions you raised can be discussed in the context of the other committee, mm -hmm. uh, the hearings that are held by the status of women. And uh, the other thing is that this, these first hearings that were conducted by the House Defense Committee, they, they had a bit of a moving target because it really started with 
Vance and who knew what and when. But then allegations against his successor and Mo McDonald came to the fore, as well as Vice Admiral Edmondson, and they have both stepped aside from their roles while investigations are conducted. But it got bogged down in the who knew what and when. What I appreciate with the status of women committee hearings is it's taking a broader view on problem, yes, about how to respond to sexual misconduct, but also about gender integration within the military, about culture, about what can we do to improve the situation of women who are currently serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. We had uh, General Carignan, General Bourgon testify last week with regards to that. So I, I guess I'm more optimistic because I think that we will continue to learn a lot from this process uh, because there's this other committee that's also been tasked with studying the issue. Yeah, and that's a good thing is that there's more than one committee. This is actually a research question that I have with with Phil Gasset and David Arswald is, if you have more committees involved, is that better or worse? I think in this case, it's better because if one doesn't really carry the ball very far or one is being utilized for partisan point scoring, the other one can actually do some serious overseeing and, and recommending and reporting. So I think that's a, a good way to look at it, Steph. So thanks for reminding me about that second committee because I think that one is the one that's going to actually have some heft to it in terms of recommendations. Well, let's hope so. Shall we move on to Afghanistan? Uh, the news of the week has been that President Joe Biden has followed through on what he signaled quite along, along the way, is that he wants the United States out of Afghanistan by September 11th, 20th anniversary of the attack on New York and Washington. Are you surprised by this? Do you find this to be a problem? I mean, is it time for forever wars to end or should we keep on sticking around? Trump had initially committed to a May 1st deadline. So this extends the deadline by four months. I was a bit surprised by framing it around the 20th anniversary of the war and 9-11. And I think choosing the 9-11 anniversary as a final withdrawal date maybe is, is a bit in bad taste, but maybe that's just my own personal feelings. It just seems like it would be a harder pill to swallow for victims of 9-11, but also for the fallen troops and injured service members who served in Afghanistan. I don't know. So that was my first reaction when I, when I heard around the actual date. Trump definitely tied Biden's hands in many respects, because walking back on this commitment to withdraw U.S. troops would definitely lead to an uptick in violence on behalf of the Taliban. There had been already an increase of violence in Afghanistan since last year, but it had mostly spared the American troop presence. So now Biden is pushing back the deadline, but is not completely walking back from the commitment that was made to, to the Taliban. So I still feel like Trump created few good options for his successor. Then I think we need to talk about the fact that uh, you know, this doesn't go in, in line with the advice that Biden received from his generals, from his top generals, for instance. Of course, they always hate these kinds of politically imposed deadlines. These deadlines are not tied to how the security situation evolves on the ground. And also you are showing your hand, making a harder set of conditions-based withdrawal. So I know this is a recurring theme when it comes to publicly communicated, politically imposed deadlines to end wars. Those are our first few hot takes. Were you surprised by this announcement? I mean, I know Biden had previously expressed skepticism in terms of what the U.S. could achieve with prolonged engagement, mm. but uh, were you surprised this was announced so soon? Were you surprised by the extension of the deadline? What are your initial thoughts? 
Well, I, th- I think you're right that Trump really set the timetable for this because the United States couldn't leave by May responsibly. And by responsibly, I mean, yeah, you can pull out the troops, but all their stuff would be left behind. Pulling out, even with all, only having 2,000, 2,500 troops still requires you know, not, not only taking care of the troops, but the stuff. And as Canada learned, getting your stuff out of Afghanistan is not an easy thing. So this gives the troops a ch- chance to, to actually get the equipment out. It also gives a chance for the allies to make decisions and they're all deciding to leave at the same time. So it makes sense not to do it in May. It makes sense to do it at some point because you know people have been criticizing Biden for saying, well, this removes the leverage you've had over the Taliban. And it's like, what leverage have we had over the Taliban? That whatever Trump leverage there was, Trump threw away. And to be fair to Trump, which I hardly ever am, there wasn't much leverage. The Taliban knows that they have intimate time and we don't have infinite time. And we weren't making progress in any fast kind of way. What difference would it be to be there a year or two, three years later? That was the question that Biden really put to the military folks is, what's the difference between now and next year? What's the difference between now and three years from now? And the typical politician will say, well, in four years, I'm not going to be president anymore, so it'll be somebody else's problem. And that was sort of the why the United States kept on staying and getting and getting involved in Vietnam, was just kicking the can down the road for the next president, just doing enough to, to keep the thing going so that we, it doesn't fall on your watch. Biden is willing to, have to take the hit that he saw Obama pull out of Iraq, thanks to agreements that actually, similarly, George Bush had made with the Iraqi government. And then Obama got criticized for it when Iraq collapsed in the face of the ISIS onslaught in 2014, and they had to return. So there's a possibility that the United States might have to return in some capacity down the road. And Biden knows all of this, but he just doesn't think that just kicking the can down the road every year and keeping troops there makes a lot of sense. And I've been ambivalent about this because I feel really bad about what's going on with, with Afghan people. And I feel bad that there's been a lot invested, but some costs are never a good argument for keeping things going. There was a good Twitter conversation about this, about people saying, we have to justify leaving. And no, the answer is you always have to justify staying. You have to justify continuing to extend resources, continuing to put people's lives at risk. You have to justify the use of force and the continuing use of force. And there's not really a lot of good arguments besides we're just delaying things by a year or two years or three years. So as I said, I'm a little ambivalent. I was more harshly critical of Trump because it was it, there was no process. It was just his gut instincts. I think Biden has had these conversations and he's, he's been thinking about this for a long time. He was present during uh, Obama's long process of considering the surge in 2009, 2010. And so I think that there's more responsible people behind the wheel on this. So I, I feel a little more comfortable with this decision. I'm not comfortable with it, but I feel better about it than the announcements that Trump was making because it just wasn't, there was no process behind it. So I've I've often referred to Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that as a land of no good alternatives. And so there was never a good alternative for how to deal with Afghanistan at this moment in time. And so you have to choose the least worst of of, of bad alternatives. And I think that's what they're doing right now. Can I ask you how you feel about the framing of the withdrawal dates around the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the beginning of the war? It doesn't bother me. I mean, I was in the Pentagon in 9-11 and I met people who had been harmed in that attack, but I'm, I definitely don't consider myself a survivor like people who really got hurt by those attacks. But I, I don't really see why it's it's seen as so crass. The war is 20 years old. How many times do you fight a 20-year war is longer than 20 years? It, this puts a cap on, on that experience. We need to move on from 9-11. It's been, you know, every year we mark the anniversary and we should keep on marking the anniversary, but I'm not going to, you know, this, this year will be the last year I write an annual blog post about my 9-11 experience and what, it, you know, what the past 20 years have meant. I think it's time to think about a post, post 9-11 
world, just like we stop thinking about a post-Cold War world, uh, we should think about a post-9-11, a post-post-9-11 world and move on. Now it's going to be about a post-pandemic world. That's what we need to think about. We need to think about engaging in a multipolar world that's no longer the world that that it was in, in the aughts or 20 years down the road. And so I think it's time for us to, to move on. And, and I think picking that date fairly symbolizes that it, it is time to move on. It doesn't mean that we forget the people that we lost. It means that it's time for us to, to look forward and try to recover from the current crisis and build a better world than just, you know, keep on reinforcing the things that we made, the decisions we made in the aftermath of 9-11. Some of those decisions were good ones. Some of those decisions were bad ones, but most of them are no longer really as relevant for what we're doing these days as, as decisions we have to make now to deal with the pandemic, to deal with China, to deal with cybersecurity, to deal with climate change. We have a whole host of problems and terrorism is really not that close to the top on it. And if terrorism is close to the top of our threats, it's, well, it's homegrown white supremacist, far right extremism that is our threat, not Islamist terrorism. That, that, that will still be a challenge. We'll still have ISIS's of the world. ISIS will come, you know, and its ilk will come back, but they're not the number one threat to the United States and Canada. They're not the number one threat to Europe. And we've learned that spending a lot of time working on counterterrorism and increasing the powers of the state may not be the best way to handle our problems. So I think it's time to reflect on what happened, but it's time to move on. Mm, I think your point about the pandemic also rings true when it comes to how the American people feel about the intervention, because in 2019, uh, when, when Trump was in office, only a minority of Americans supported full withdrawal. But that was before COVID, and I think everything has changed. Right now, it's a much more politically palatable decision. But in the long term, I do think that these post 9-11 forever wars will make the Americans even more skeptical of foreign interventions. And I think it should make us think, especially us uh, security and defense experts, about the effectiveness of capacity building efforts overall. I mean, when you look at the numbers in terms of money spent and the Afghan troops trained, it can look like impressive metrics, but the truth is that the Afghan government never really had effective control over its territory. So I think uh, as the withdrawal takes place, it should raise important questions about the sustainability and the effectiveness of capacity building efforts, both from the US, mm -hmm. but also carried out by NATO allies and in Canada's included, of course, in that bunch. Uh, and the final thing I'll say, just because, you know, we should relay this back to a mostly Canadian audience, is that it, the Canadian decision back in 2011 into perspective, I think, mm -hmm. what would we have gained as a country or what would Afghanistan have gained had the, the Canadian Armed Forces stayed on past 2011 when it comes, that was the date that we withdrew mm -hmm. the combat troops and then, you know, training activities continued on until 2014. But I couldn't help but think back to that moment and that perhaps it was the right decision to, to leave at that point in time. I hadn't thought about it uh, in that way. I think given what's happened, yeah, somebody else picked up our, our efforts in, in Kandahar. So things didn't change until the Americans left Kandahar in 2014, right? That real change in Kandahar was, was when they left, not when the Canadians left. And so the real impact of us leaving in 2011 was more of an uh, the impact in the alliance and the impact on, on Canada. And I, I thought that the Canadians, I thought Stephen Harper and, and, and the parliament and everybody else who pulled us out of Afghanistan in 2011 was in some ways uh, wasting the political capital that we had gained by being there in the first place. But the question is, is that worth the lives of, of Canadian soldiers? And, and that's a really good question. And is it worth the billions of dollars? And, and that's a really good question. 
I argued at the time we should have stayed. Uh, looking backwards now, I, I don't know how to think about it. I don't know how to consider the costs, but it's something to think about. It's definitely something that, that I'll, I'll, I'll have to think about, but I, I can't come up with an answer right now, but I, I definitely made me uh, think about this a little, a little harder than I, than I was prepared to today. Uh, so we'll, I'll change topics since uh, I, I can do that. Speaking about enduring conflicts, the Russians have been piling troops on the borders of Ukraine. So the last I saw was 80,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. The Russians have been making a lot of noise lately. Is this something that is threatening a, an invasion of Ukraine or is this Putin just posturing for domestic audiences who are paying more attention to poisoned political opponents? It's funny because I have a doctoral candidate, Thomas Hughes, who studies this. He studies uh, military exercises and what makes them threatening because there is a confidence building mechanism in place to prevent misunderstandings and misinterpretation around military exercises. They have been at the heart of the NATO-Russia relationship for decades. So it's uh, it's interesting to look at, at this one being pitched as a readiness exercise in response to uh, threatening NATO exercises in Europe and all of the propaganda around that. Mm -hmm. But it, it does seem a little bit like a, a unique occurrence. Of course, people are making a lot of parallels to, to 2014. And, and in that sense, it's not unique. But that Russia routinely does these large uh, no-notice snap exercises. But this time, I think that the context and the environment with uh, the political and security environment with Ukraine makes this particularly threatening. And of course, for bringing it back to Canada, again, we were just asking the question, uh, was Canada right to uh, withdraw its troops from Afghanistan in 2011 and then from the training mission in 2014. I mean, we could ask the same question here as well about Canada's role in, in Ukraine and, and uh, its ongoing capacity building efforts there in terms of professionalizing the Ukraine, um, the Ukrainian armed forces and, and improving its overall capabilities. You know, is this the right type of, of operation for Canada in this moment when tensions are flaring up? And will we see an increased role for NATO in the foreseeable future? I know this particular standoff, if you'll call it that, has led to a greater call for NATO to officialize Ukraine's path to membership. And certainly a lot of countries like Canada, who are NATO countries, have been involved bilaterally with Ukraine and providing capacity building support. So I think it'll be hard to achieve NATO consensus on this point <laughs> <laughs> in the foreseeable future. But, uh, but to me, this very situation raises so many different questions at the same time that it's, uh, it's pretty difficult to give a succinct and coherent answer to your question. Yeah, I just don't want to, I don't see Ukraine having a pathway to NATO membership. I just don't think it would get consensus. The folks who want Ukraine to be in NATO are, are folks with large Ukrainian populations, which would be Ukraine, Canada, and the United States, but not the folks in between. You're not going to see the Germans and the French sign on to this anytime too soon. So I worry about encouraging the Ukrainians too much, but with that, Plus, Ukraine has its own political problems that would make them meet the membership criteria kind of challenging, even though ultimately membership is all about just whether countries want you in or not. So I do worry about this. I'm not super worried that, that there's a digestible hunk of Ukraine that Russia wants, that Putin wants. They got the piece that they needed. Again, uh, I'm not sure, but I, I just can't help but think this is driven more by Russia's domestic politics than by anything that's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment as well. But I, I do worry about this longer term 
trend of seeing a threat every time there's a, a military exercise, because that's certainly not a great path for NATO-Russia relations. Not that <laughs> the path was all that rosy to begin with, but if we if we start going down that route, I mean, there are so many exercises conducted on both sides annually. So if we're constantly having a war on of words every time there's a, an exercise carried on each side, then you know it just seems uh, counterproductive. Well, sure. And when you have the Russians say the U.S. should stay out of the Black Sea or else, oh, I'm sorry, for their own good, that's a alarming as well. I mean, the interesting thing is that Biden has reached out to Putin saying, hey, let's talk about it. Let's let's he, he's had a conversation. He's willing to have a, a summit somewhere in Europe, notably not in Washington, D.C., or in the United States and not in Russia, but somewhere in the in between to have a conversation. And that's really striking because that that's really Cold War-esque of, okay, we're not going to meet our capital, your capital, we'll meet somewhere neutral-ish and we'll try to develop rules of the road. And that makes a great deal of sense to me. So I think the challenge the Russians have is they put all their money on Trumping in power and they don't have that anymore. And Biden is realizes that China is the bigger threat. So he doesn't want to spend too much time dealing with Russia, but wants to make sure that Russia pays some kind of price. Not as much, much of a price as we would like to have them pay for all the stuff they've done the past four years, but not make it cost for a year. Anyhow, uh, we've talked for a long time. So before we stop, we should note that we have the interview with Cash Khorasani. He is the leader of the Concordia-based SPNet, which is one of the Minds Networks. This one focuses on AI and other high technology and, and figuring out policies for those things. His network is very different because it's more a group of engineers trying to engage social scientists rather than most other networks, which is most of social scientists trying to engage, well, everybody else. So I talked to him a, a couple of weeks ago about his network and about his work. And so that comes up next. And then I'll have my R&R segment, which will have a book for a change because I finally got some new reading. Ooh. And uh, just in reference to your feature interview with Cash Corsani, this is the last interview with the Minds Networks for the two first rounds. Eh? We've covered them all to date, correct? That is correct. And now we have to start making arrangements to talk to the, the next wave of folks who got the, the newest wave of Minds money. But since Minds hasn't announced them yet, I guess we can't make any announcements about them or interview these folks yet either. Mm -hmm. We'll hold tight. Thank you so much for today's episode. Uh, Steve, it was good talking to you. We'll speak next in two weeks. Wish me luck with uh, virtual school. And, <laughs> and good luck finding a fake ID so that we can be older than you really are. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Steve, uh, for your kind invitation. It's indeed my uh, pleasure to be here uh, to talk to you. My name is Kash Khorasani, and I'm a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering, as well as the Institute of Aerospace for Design and Innovation at uh, Concordia University in Montreal. I have been in academia doing research and teaching for almost 36 years. Wow. My main areas of interest, they are a bit technical, but since I'm I'm a professor in engineering, so my main areas of research interests are in uh, control systems, mm -hmm. in cyber-physical systems, in diagnosis and monitoring, in autonomous uh, unmanned vehicles such as drones, and in cybersecurity, in space, satellites, and finally in machine learning and artificial intelligence and AI. So that's about me. 
in a nutshell. And you are the director of the Security Policy Nexus on Emerging Technology, right? That's right. So this is a project that is funded by the Department of National Defense under their MINES program, the Mobilizing Insight in Defense and Security, and I'm the PI of this project. And what is SPNet? I guess that's how you pronounce it, SPNet. What is SPNet doing these days? What is what is its mission that distinguishes itself from all the other networks that need these funding these days? SPNet stands for Security Policy Nexus of Emerging Technologies. And uh, it's a collaborative network consisting of four universities from three provinces, two universities from Quebec, uh, Concordia and ETS, one from Ontario, uh, University of Windsor, and one from British Columbia, uh, UBC. And it consists of nine professors, nine researchers. Four of them are from uh, departments in political science, management, supply chain and business technology and engineering and society. And then we have five professors uh, that are in electrical and computer engineering and mechanical engineering. So it's a really evenly balanced group of uh, people and researchers with expertise in engineering and political science and management. We also have four industries that are our partners, uh, Rockwell Collins, CAE, these are uh, OEMs, major corporations, and then we have uh, SMEs, small to medium enterprises, SIA Canada, and ARA uh, Robotics. Uh, we also have the participation of FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration of the U.S. They have a center of excellence for unmanned aircraft systems, and uh, they're also a governmental uh, entity that is a partner with us. And so I guess the question is, is the things you're studying are the things that people are scared of these days, drones, AI, artificial intelligence. And so the question is, how can you reassure Canadians that uh, these new technologies are not going to be harmful to their privacy, to their security, that kind of stuff. Is it that you are out there making sure the government develops good policies to make sure that the private actors don't develop technologies that harm uh, the citizens? Uh, Steve, you just uh, touched upon the crux of the matter. That's exactly why this uh, collaboration network is uh, created. And uh, that's, why, that's why we got the support from the Department of National Defense. It's exactly to address these issues that you have uh, pointed out. If I can add a bit more detail in terms of what is it that we are trying to do, of, our, of the specific interest that we have in this uh, collaborative network essentially is to address three research challenges. Again, related to autonomous system, artificial intelligence, and uh, cyberspace. Or you can put them all together into what is known as cyber-physical systems. There's another terminology that engineers and computer scientists use, and that's called IoT, Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the military uh, domain uh, community, they call them a system of systems. So uh, I, I prefer the, the terminology cyber-physical system because I think that covers and it encompasses all of these domains. So basically what is cyber-physical system is, the, is that the recent advances in computing, communication, and uh, control have resulted in development of uh, highly interconnected, distributed, sensor-rich systems that have multiple applications. Uh, there has been a study done uh, by General Electric and by uh, NIST, National Institute of Standard of Technology, which is uh, part of the U.S. Uh, government of the Department of Commerce, which they predicted, and of course this is uh, before COVID, they predicted that CPS in the next 15 years, by 2035, has an economical contribution and effect of about $85 trillion. That's half the world economy. So we're talking about big things here. This is 
transformative. If I am exaggerating in some sense, this is as transformative as internet was maybe 20, 25 years ago. So we are talking about really major disruptive technologies that we're going to see have a significant impact in our lives. And to give you an example of where these cyber-physical systems come from, they are in uh, what is called as next-gen transportation systems, which involves uh, electric uh, or hyper-electric aircraft in air taxis, where you're talking about drones that are used for, for transportation or in electrification of trains and in cars. They're also involved in driveless cars, in autonomous vehicles. And even further, if I can go to, into medical instrumentation and into what is called as smart healthcare systems, and then you're talking about cyber-physical medical system, and broadly into what is called as safety-critical systems or uh, critical infrastructure, such as smart grid, which is basically integration of conventional power generation and uh, distribution and consumption with uh, renewable energy like winds and uh, solar into smart cities, into smart buildings, and even to food and agriculture. So these have uh, connections to sustainability and sustainability of all these technologies. So it is really transformative. So what we're talking about is having a really significant impact in our future livelihoods. I'm still scared. The science fiction has trained us to be worried about this, that all these technologies, obviously any technology can be used for harm or good. I was always struck by people complaining about the internet breaking up their relationships because it allowed people to communicate with potential targets of affairs. And it's like, did they feel that way about the telephone? And I'm pretty sure that if we look back at when the telephone came out, people were blaming it for breaking up families. So I right. guess the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, right. I guess for, for us, the, the challenge is there's the pace of change is so fast. And That's so right. the question is, can governments keep up with the changing technologies? And not and this is not about them being able to actually run the systems on, on themselves because they clearly can't. But the question is whether they can regulate so that way the new systems aren't bad for society. And again, uh, that's exactly the, uh, one of the topics and the issues that we are looking at in this uh, collaborative network in our group, because we feel that it's important that the researchers, the technology developers, and even policy makers address all of these challenges that are related to these technologies that I mentioned. So specifically, I'd like to maybe focus on the first challenge that we're looking at, and that's the artificial intelligence. So the issues that one can look at are, for example, how can we ensure trust? How can we ensure reliability? How can we ensure safety of these AI-based solutions? And especially when you are using these technologies in safety critical and critical infrastructure systems, then safety and reliability and trust are fundamental. It's the same thing that FAA does with certification of airplanes. Whenever any uh, aerospace company brings in a new aircraft, it has to go through a rigorous set of certifications so that we make sure that it doesn't really cause uh, health and safety issues. So these are, again, same kind of issues that are related to these technologies. An example is deep fake mm -hmm. that is happening so often. And so it, it is losing trust. People lose trust in all of these AI technologies. And another one, which is even more significantly dangerous, that's called adversarial attacks. And what, uh, what the hackers, uh, what the malicious hackers do is essentially they change the outcome of these machine learning and uh, AI-based solutions. And so they can misguide the operators. So if you are running a driverless car and the camera in your car detects stop sign, 
but some hacker can say, no, this is not a stop sign, but this is a, a green light. You can easily see how, hack how hacker can essentially cause havoc uh, in our daily lives. So it is important to uh, also incorporate basically ethical and legal requirements so that mm -hmm. uh, these technologies that we are talking about, they have to respect human dignity. They have to respect freedom. They have to respect justice and transparency. So some of the other issues that we're looking at are uh, how can we develop public policy standards and frameworks uh, that can measure and can assure that these solutions are explainable, that they are interpretable? This, again, touches upon the questions of safety and security. We need to also discuss the issues in terms of accountability. And related to that is trustworthiness. Related to that is responsibility. Related to that is answerability. Who is responsible for these solutions? Who who are we supposed to be answerable to? So these are all, all these issues that we have to look at. And developing effective policies and regulations to address all of these concerns is really some of the main uh, issues that we are looking at. For example, transparency. We need to make sure that how these black box systems make a decision. Again, questions about privacy. Whenever, when now we have all of these facial and uh, voice recognition issues and uh, technologies commonly used, then the questions of privacy comes in. And then the ethics in terms of how AI system has an impact on, on the public and then what would be the risk and the threats of these AI systems uh, to public. So we need to monitor them. We need to come up with ways to improve concerns about the ethics. And then in terms of fairness, so you mm -hmm. need to make sure that these systems are making no discrimination or, or making no bias. And the bias can be generated because of the way we collect the data. So if the data is biased, then the decision and outcome that comes out of that will also be biased. And that will lead to loss of trust. Again, questions of racial and gender discrimination are quite uh, common in AI-based systems. For example, in recruitment AI, companies who are using AI to recruit, if the data that they have are biased from racial mm. and gender perspectives, then they make biased decisions. In terms of using uh, some criminal offices, they basically investigate crimes based on Twitter. People make foreign policy decisions based on AI. Businesses make decisions based on AI. So if all of these issues of privacy, ethics, fairness, and non-discriminative practices are not incorporated, then uh, there will be issues that we uh, have to deal with. It seems like you're, you've got a, a research agenda that is proliferating and, and really challenging. So I guess looking back at the past couple of years of your network, can you point to like one or two things, events, or deliverables in the language of D&D that you're proudest of that uh, you hope will help shape conversations about these issues? Well, we started in November of 2019. So we, we were just trying to organize uh, workshops. Uh, we had plans to do workshops in last year, 2020, but then we see what happened. So there has been delay. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, basically an outreach uh, that we had introduced in our programs and interested to do that. That's one of the main missions that we have to be able to communicate uh, this information uh, to the public. But uh, so there has, there has been a delay on that. But we have set up a website under the publication section. You see that we have close to 50 or so uh, what they call as briefing notes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're trying to cover a wide range of issues that we are investigating in this uh, project. 
So that's been the, the way that we have communicated, uh, but hopefully through maybe more uh, seminars and uh, workshops that we can organize uh, even offline, we can maybe do a more effective way of uh, sharing and disseminating our information to the public. So I, I'm curious, since your network is very different from a lot of the other networks that d has funded, those are other ones that usually based on the old um, security defense forum research centers in some kind of way people have had much experience working with dnd is is there one thing that you know sort of surprised you in coming at dnd from a different angle that they weren't ready for or that you you hadn't anticipated is there is there something that you could tell other other folks who are trying to connect with dnd that aren't in the sort of the traditional uh, networks well my experience is that that we need to talk to each other more so mm-hmm. we need to outreach, we need to contact with more people. So I think that that's the natural reservation that people have when they are uh, interacting with things that they are not comfortable with. But to avoid and to overcome these barriers that we have, I think we need to have more engagement. We need to provide more opportunities. The government can be the initiator of that through these programs that the, the DND has created. It can encourage, it can provide more support for this kind of uh, cross and interdisciplinary uh, exchanges so that we don't feel uncomfortable to Mm -hmm. work and talk to people. There's a reservation in our mental thinking, in our training. I'm comfortable with whatever I'm doing. I think we have to get out of these comfort zones that we have created for ourselves. As academics, uh, I'm saying that I'm comfortable with with whatever I'm doing, but I think we have to shake it and government can take the leadership. So usually academics, as I said, because we're all busy with doing whatever mm-hmm. we're doing, we don't take that initiative. We, I'm not going to just go on my own and just go across the street to another department in political science or in economy, mm-hmm. economics or management and say, okay, can we work together? Government has to take the leadership in that sense. So mm-hmm. I think my, my recommendation or my suggestion is that there has to be more support and more encouragement for these cross-interdisciplinary. You cannot have just bunch of engineers working together or a bunch of political scientists working together or a bunch of economists working together. I think it has to be cross interactions among all of us. It has to be encouraged. So sometimes you need the government to take the leadership. Sometimes it's grassroots, but sometimes you need to get the support and encouragement from the government. So I I, I feel that like creating these uh, networks, creating these innovative networks that allows us to work together, uh, people coming from different backgrounds, I think that's how we can break our barriers and then learn uh, from other people's experiences. And then that can contribute, that can strengthen, that can increase the quality of our work. So I'm all for it. That's why I got into it, because I find this is an excellent opportunity. This is a unique opportunity. It's not, if I go to my usual governmental agencies where I look for funding, which is NSERT, these kind of programs are not very standardized. You know, it's very structured, very disciplined. But I think through the Minds program, having this network opportunity to bring people from different groups, I think that's an excellent idea. And I think, I hope that they will continue with that. And mm-hmm. maybe we are the guinea pigs of that. We are experimental uh, group of people that they are going to now evaluate. So, okay, we give a chance <laughs> to a bunch of engineers and scientists, political scientists to work together. What happened? And that becomes my 
objectives to make sure that I, we don't uh, disappoint them. <laughs> I will definitely work hard because maybe we are among the very few in this collaborative network that has this different expertise, engineers and political scientists and social scientists. But uh, I hope that they will they feel that there is a value that we have added. Mm -hmm. Uh, that we brought from our own technical expertise and then share them with our political scientists and economists and mm. managers and see how they have taken that information and how we took their suggestions and their recommendations mm. in the way that we do things. I got to tell you that I, I have been paging around, one around your page, web page the past week or so in preparation for this to see what you guys have been up to. And, and the volume of, of briefing notes, the, all the efforts that you've been doing have been most impressive. It has not been an easy time for a new network to get off the ground. And obviously the issues that you're dealing with, whether it's cyberspace or AI, I know these are difficult policy problems that the government mostly does not have the expertise to think about these policy problems. They don't. You know, these are things that we've been reading about in science fiction for decades, but they present all kinds of very, very difficult trade-offs. And so there's not necessarily any right answers, but there's definitely right things to think about. That's and right. uh, I think that your team has been doing an excellent job of bringing together interesting people to really highlight the challenges. They may not to provide, okay, here's the one size fits all solution, but here are the kinds of things we need to think about as we regulate this next thing that we don't really quite understand yet, that, that you guys are on the cutting edge and, and you're seeing the future. So I think it's really valuable to have your perspective on these things. Thank you very much, Steve, for that support. Thank you very much. I think that that the more that people know what you guys are up to, the, the better off we will all be. I have downloaded a bunch of your briefing notes that I'll be reading because they, they relate to some of the stuff that we've been working on at the Canadian Defense and Security Network. And uh, we will definitely have more of your people come to more of our events so that way we can have the conversations between the engineers and the policy types and all the other folks in, the, in this uh, environment. So I want to thank you again for your time. Thank you very much, Steve. my R&R segment today, I've got three recommendations as usual. The first is A Call to Spy. It is a Netflix movie based on a true story. It's about women who spied for the British against the Nazis in World War II. It features two women, uh, one an American who wasn't able to make it very far in the diplomatic corps because she had a disability, and another woman who was British, but of Indian descent. And it's about them learning how to become spies. And they're two of the first people who got deployed into France and helping the resistance against the Nazis in France. And so it's a, it's a good movie and it's a good hunk of history that I didn't know about. And so I recommend that. My second recommendation is What to Do in the Shadows. It's made by the same guy who made Thor Ragnarok. And it's a fun take on vampires. It's a mockumentary. It's kind of like The Office meets, I don't know, a vampire movie. Anyway, uh, it's a fun TV series. Uh, the first season was delightful, and the second season thus far is also delightful. Very silly, a little bit gory, but not very scary at all. It's just really funny, and it really plays with all the tropes wonderfully. And my third recommendation is a John Sanford novel. John Sanford it was a Minnesota-based journalist who has written a, a couple different series of books. One are the Prey series. Every book has Prey, P-R-E-Y, in the title, and it features a uh, Minnesota cop uh, Lucas Davenport. Now, that may not be the best timing these days, given what's going on with the Minnesota police, but the, the books I've really enjoyed over the years. And so the latest one came out uh, last week, 
Ocean Prey, and it's based in crime in Florida, which is always a great place to have crime novels based. So that's what I'm reading, watching, and otherwise spending my time while I'm recovering from my AstraZeneca-induced side effects. Go out there if you can, get your shots, figure out which pharmacy, Costco, Walmart, whoever's near you has has the stuff, and sign up if you can. Even though I paid a bit of a price for it this weekend, I do it again, and I will do it again when my turn comes again. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to cdsn.rcds.outlook.com. Thank you.